And please open your Bibles to John chapter 7. Yes, we've finally gotten out of chapter 9. And we will begin chapter 7. Um, and, and chapter 7 and chapter 8 function as a, as a subunit. And they govern Jesus going up and his teaching in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And so the first 13 verses this morning set the stage to get Jesus up to Jerusalem. And then starting next week, we'll begin with the controversy. We'll begin with his teaching and the response of the people. And so we're going to look at John 7, 1 to 13. I'd like to begin by reading it. John 7, 1 to 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. And others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Lord God, as we study this passage, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might behold the glory of your son, that we might identify the unbelief of his brothers, and that we might come to trust in Jesus, that our faith in him might grow and become strong. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, before we move much further into chapter 7, we're going to stop and take a study of the concept of what is the Feast of Booths? What is the Feast of Tabernacles? It governs these two chapters, and I'm guessing it's one of the feasts in Israel most of us are not very familiar with. Most of us probably have some understanding of the Day of Atonement, of Passover, those are pretty familiar, but the Feast of Booths, Probably not so much. And yet it is the backdrop. The, the feast system in Israel is the backdrop of Jesus' um, second half of his public ministry in John's gospel. The Passover was the backdrop of the feeding of the 5,000. And now we get the Feast of Booths for seven and eight. So we're going to begin by considering what is this? John is assuming we have some understanding of this Jewish background. So if you keep your finger here, you can turn to Leviticus 23. There's a number of passages we can look at to understand the Feast of Booths, but Leviticus 23 will probably be the most helpful. And while you turn there, um, as we consider the context of John 7 and 8, I'll, I'll make the first point that the Feast of Booths is one of three pilgrimages. It's a pilgrimage feast. The liturgical calendar of Israel has many feasts and celebrations and holy days, but only three of them... <clears throat> Three of them were required of every male Israelite to go to Jerusalem. This was one of them. In Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times a year, all your males 
shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. So this is one of three feasts obligated of all the men in Israel to go to Jerusalem to observe. And it's centered around the harvest. It's centered around the harvest. If you look in, let me get to Leviticus 23 here. Picking up in verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work for seven days. You shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim at times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on his proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths and besides your gifts and beside all your vow offerings and beside all your freewill offerings, which you will give to the Lord on the 15th day, the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest. On the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All the native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel an appointed feast of the Lord. So, got a couple ideas here. First, it's a harvest festival. It's after the bringing in of the crop. And it's not just, don't just think grain, it's probably more likely the, the olive and the grape, um, as, as other passages referencing this feast mention. So the idea is this, when your work of harvesting is done, when, you, when you've done the hard work of harvesting the crop, there was a week-long celebration. And the celebration entailed rejoicing before the Lord God, living in a, in a booth that you made with your own hands, and, and eating and drinking the, the fruit and the, of the earth and the crops, and giving thanks to the Lord. This is easily the most rejoicing and happy of the feasts of the Lord. Um, Josephus references this was the high mark of the Jewish year. This was just a harvest celebration. In fact, so much so that the Puritans um, who came to New England, when they created Thanksgiving, it's clear, there's evidence they were modeling it after the celebration. A people who had not had a land now have a land. The Lord has given them produce. The Lord has given them abundant supply and they feast and rejoice to the Lord. So it's a harvest celebrating lasting seven days and it takes place about six months after Passover. You can see this is in the seventh month and so we're jumping forward from the end of chapter six now, about six, maybe seven months. We, We just jumped ahead. So the action left us at the end of chapter 6 of John where with Jesus' disciplings abandon, abandoning him. And now we move ahead about six or seven months. 
Next, it is observed with great rejoicing for the harvest. Observed with great rejoicing for the harvest. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 16, 14 to 15, speaking about this feast, emphasizing the rejoicing. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. This is a a time of joy. That's the idea of the feast. The Lord has set apart a week for the people of Israel after the work of the ingathering of the harvest to rejoice, to give thanks to him for his abundant provision, to partake of that abundant provision, and to cease from their work and to celebrate and rejoice. So it's observed with great rejoicing. Marked with a variety of daily offerings. You saw that. There's all types of offerings. In fact, um, let me read a quote to you. The, the offerings during the Feast of Booths double the offerings of the Passover. Compared to the Passover, the next biggest festival in terms of the number of offerings, the Feast of Tabernacles had double the amount of rams and lambs and five times the amount of bulls offered. Over the course of the week, there would be 70 bulls, 14 rams, and 98 lambs total. The reference in numbers gives the, the exact specifications of what offerings are to be made what day. So this is a massive celebration. It's centered around Jerusalem. You've got to go to Jerusalem. It's a massive camping event as people are building booths and rejoicing. It's a time of great joy. This is also fitting considering where we've been in John 6 because Jesus is the bread from heaven, picturing the the sustenance the Lord gave Israel in the wilderness. Well, the Feast of Booths also, we learned, looks back to that. In fact, um, point three here, it is to be kept by dwelling in booths or tabernacles. Um, sometimes this is called the Feast of Tabernacles. A tabernacle is a type of booth or a tent. That's the idea. And, and the reason for that is given, it's that to remember God's provision in the wilderness. To remember God's provision in the wilderness. Verse 43 of Leviticus 23 makes that clear. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So God wants them in the Feast of Booths to be looking back. There was a time where we didn't have a homeland. There was a time where we were wanderers and sojourners, and yet God provided for us. God cared for us. And now that they're in the land, they are to remember God's provision and not to grow confident. They are to give thanks and offer him back a piece of the first fruits and remember that ultimately God is their provider. We, we learn that too, don't we, in difficult times, in times when we're well aware that without God's grace, we would stumble and fall. And yet the temptation for us as well is when things are going well and when we feel that our strength is great, we trust in our strength, you and I are just as dependent upon God's grace as in the most dire moment of your life. We just aren't equally aware of it. And God wants us to remember this. He has Israel set aside a week where they, part of the reason they're living in these booths, these tents, these tabernacles, is remember, remember, there was a time you didn't have a land. There was a time when you were wanderers and sojourners, and I cared for you. And they drank water from a rock, and they ate miraculous bread. And now God is providing for them in more normal means. But still, the produce of the ground is his gift. 
mean, everything they're celebrating and, and, and giving to God and offering a sacrifice is coming up from the ground, whether it's the, the, the crop itself or the cattle that feed on the, the grass and grow. They're completely dependent upon it. God brings them to a good land and he sets apart this time to um, remember his provision. But we know in John's gospel that not only does the Feast of Tabernacles look backwards to the exodus from Egypt, but it also looks forward it's to remember God's provision in the wilderness and to anticipate God's dwelling with us. Turn, turn back to John chapter 7. Actually, turn to John 1. Perhaps your Bible will have a footnote here. John 1, 14. John has already hinted at this. He uses a rather obscure word here. In verse 114, it says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word for dwelt there is not a normal Greek word. It literally is the word tabernacled. Jesus pitched his tent with us. And, and when you consider that metaphor, it makes sense. Jesus leaves his homeland. He leaves his throne. And he comes and as an alien and a sojourner in our world with us, he dwells with us. I mean, Emmanuel means God with us, after all. And so John has already framed the incarnation, in a sense, as Jesus tenting with us, camping with us. And so this feast of booths where Israel remembers that they dwelt in tents also anticipates the fact that their God will sojourn with them. Even as they're moving around in the wilderness, the people had tents in the wilderness, but who also had a tabernacle? The Lord God had a tabernacle moving about with them. And ultimately, this, this notion of, of being in a foreign land, which we know in the New Testament, we're strangers in a strange land, living as foreigners and exiles in the time of our sojourning, looks forward to a new heavens and a new earth, where we read in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And so that reminder in, in, in the Feast of Booths, both that God would leave his habitation and dwell with us, and that even now in this world, we are exiles and strangers. The book of Hebrews reminds us we are longing for and looking for a homeland, a city whose author and founder is God. We, we are exiles. This would be a good thing for us to remember as well. So they dwelt in booths to remember God's provision in the wilderness and to anticipate God's dwelling with us. The final place I want to turn you to turn is Zechariah 14. Uh, one additional reason why this brief overview of the Feast of Booths is significant to us is because you and I will one day celebrate this in Jerusalem with the Lord. You, you better buckle down and get familiar with the Feast of Booths because you're going to keep it. At least you are if you're a Christian. In Zechariah 14, if you remember our study through this book a few years ago, in the 14th chapter, it begins with the siege of Jerusalem. The nations of the world gather around Jerusalem, and it looks as though all hope is lost. The walls are breached. The people are taken away captive. And then, and then, verse 3, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, that lies before Jerusalem on the east. As the angel said, just as you saw him depart, he will return. Where did the Lord Jesus ascend into heaven from? Mount of Olives. Where does he return to earth? Mount of Olives. 
and the mountain of olives will split. And then the rest of this section describes the deliverance given. You can see this sort of summary statement on verse nine, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. And we read about the transformation of the land. We read about the defeat of his enemies. And then pick it up in verse 16, at the end of this battle, what happens then? Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. There will be geopolitical, national worship. The Feast of Booths in the Millennial Kingdom with King Jesus sitting on his throne in Jerusalem and you and I will be taking part of that. So one of the reasons why I encourage you to familiarize yourself with the Feast of Booths is sooner or later, you're gonna want to know what's going on with it because you're gonna take part in it. And the amazing thing is Jesus, who in the picture in Zechariah, will be reigning in Jerusalem over the Feast of Booths. In John chapter seven, as we turn back there, he's going up to keep it. He's going up not as the Lord of the Feast of the Booths, but as someone under the law, fulfilling the law of Moses on our behalf, obediently serving. So now quickly, let's look at the rest of this section. And we first we see Jesus' faithfulness and his brother's unbelief. Jesus' faithfulness and his brother's unbelief. Now the first point we get is this. Jesus is staying in and around Galilee because of the Jews. He knows the Jews are trying to get him. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths is at hand. So familiar, if we're familiar with the Feast of Booths, those first two verses set up some conflict. We know Jesus doesn't want to go near the Jews in Jerusalem, and yet we know it's mandated under the law of Moses that Jesus must go to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. What will Jesus do? Already, given this backdrop, verses 1 and 2 create some tension, conflict. Jesus doesn't want yet to be arrested by the Jews, And so he's avoiding them, but he's going to have to go. And then the conflict gets raised further. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So point two, Jesus' brothers urge him to go up publicly to Jerusalem. Now what they say here brings in two words that kind of are key words to this whole section. The words in secret and the words openly. And those idea of of public and private, secret and open, they dominate this section. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now there's a lot of debate over what his brothers are doing here. And part of what's challenging is we're told that whatever they just said comes from unbelief, right? John tells us what they said, And it's as though he assumes, if we're following his logic, we will see the unbelief of his brothers. He just tells us what they said, and then he says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So how is what they're saying evidencing unbelief? Now, some have suggested his brothers are angry with him, they're frustrated with him, they want him to get lynched. There's nothing in the text that suggests that. They they don't believe in him. That doesn't mean they want him to die. What's further interesting is what disciples does Jesus have in Jerusalem? They say, go up with us, go up, 
um, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. So the implication is their disciples who aren't with him now, they're only gonna see him if he goes to Jerusalem. You're, you're being obscure, Jesus. You're hanging around in the backwaters of Galilee. Go to the center of the nation. Go to the religious center for the great feast. Show yourself there. What are they saying? Why are they saying it? And how does it evidence unbelief? And I think the answer is made very clear if we simply remember that the chapter divisions weren't added till much, much later after the writing of this gospel. Where's the last reference to disciples previous to this reference in chapter 7? It's verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus has been losing disciples, a lot of disciples. Six, seven months have passed. I think, and here's my suggestion, that Jesus' brothers are saying this in light of his defecting disciples. They know that these disciples who've left Jesus will be at the feast in Jerusalem. And this is a chance then for Jesus to win them back. This is a chance for Jesus to get his program back on track. Jesus had great, great crowds at the beginning of chapter six, and now he's down to presumably a handful of people. I think his brothers are saying nothing more than Jesus, go to Jerusalem and give them what they want. They want miracles. We know that. We know the miracles draw the crowds, Jesus. So go to Jerusalem and do your works. Let your disciples see and they'll come back and we can get this program back on track. Something like that. It's the only way I can explain why they would be assuming there are disciples of Jesus who wouldn't see him in Galilee but would see him in Jerusalem. It's got to be these disciples who've abandoned him, who've forsaken him. And what that means then is that, well, actually, before I get to what that means, there is an irony here that he might show himself to the world. I don't think they mean anything more than everybody, but John is going to set this up and make it clear that world, world is significant. A little later, when in chapter 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And even already in um, the Old Testament, we saw that the sojourner was to keep the Feast of Booths and that ultimately the Feast of Booths isn't just for national Israel, but it's going to be for all the nations of the world. So there is an undercurrent for paying attention to our Old Testament and as we keep reading, that Jesus' brothers are speaking better than perhaps they know. I don't think for a second they mean the world beyond Israel, but the reader of the gospel who's already read in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, who knows that the Samaritan village says this is indeed the Savior of the world, they're picking up, we're picking up on that. So then how then does this reveal their unbelief? So John's assumption is that what they've just said obviously is unbelief. He says, well, you, you gotta understand his brothers didn't even believe in him. So, so how does their encouragement for Jesus to go up to Jerusalem, to go publicly, to try to get back some of his disciples, to do some works? Well, I think it hinges exactly on the drama we saw in chapter six. We saw in chapter six that Jesus was unwilling to give the crowds what they wanted, more miracles, more works. And they weren't interested in what he was offering, bread from heaven. And the, and the whole debate hinged upon works. If you turn back to chapter six, verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they were interested in what works they need to do. 
Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What works do you perform? You do some works, Jesus, and we'll do some works. You do some more miracles, we'll do some believing. And Jesus says, no. I, I think the unbelief of his disciples is they share the crowd's logic. Jesus has said, no, no, you can't come unless God enables you to come. You can't come unless God does work in your heart. And they say to Jesus, nevertheless, go do some works. Go to Jerusalem, do some miracles, do some signs. You'll get them back. That, I think, is where their unbelief. We see that their methodology aligns with the crowd. Their desires align with the crowds. And Jesus, the miracle worker, always draws crowds. We're going to see that it's, again, Jesus' message, what he testifies about is what makes them hate him. They love his miracles. They love his miracles. So it reveals their unbelief. Point C, verses 6 through 9, Jesus refuses his brother's urging. And Jesus makes a rather enigmatic statement here in verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come after saying this he remained in Galilee. And what we see is this. Jesus is committed to his father's timing. Jesus is committed to his father's timing. They are of the world. Their timing is with the world. Their, their value system and how they're thinking and how they're making suggestions are based upon human wisdom. And it makes sense of a sense. If you could do a spectacular show, you could draw a crowd. There are churches today that pick up that motif, right? Let's, let's get rid of the things that offend people. Let's downplay the divisive issues. And let's give the people what they want. In fact, um, Chuck Schuler and Bill Hybels, this was their whole model for church growth. You take a survey of the community, figure out what they want, give them that. They want a short service, give them a short service. They want good coffee, give them good coffee. They want laser light show and smoke machine, give them that. And the rationale is whatever it takes to draw people, because surely that's what we need. Yeah, there's, there's always a, a worldly approach. Jesus is committed to his father's methodology and his father's timing. Jesus has insisted the decisive factor is not how bright your light show is, but whether or not God the Father is drawing you by his spirit. That's the decisive factor, Jesus says. As he begins to lose people, he doesn't say, well, if, if this teaching about eating my flesh and drinking my blood offends you, I'll downplay it. I mean, there's, there's, if you look around in various ministries, there's all sorts of attempts. Let's not tell them what the Bible teaches about gender, sexuality, marriage. That, that'll, that'll drive people away. Just Jesus does none of that. Jesus does none of that. It's his unbelieving brothers who want him to cater to the carnal desires of the unbelieving world. That's not a good method and model to make disciples. So he refuses because he's committed to his father's timing. And then the explanation for what happens here, and what happens here is a little weird. Jesus says he's not going to go. In fact, it's so weird that some of your Bibles add the word yet, lest Jesus appear to be contradicting himself. If you've got the King James, if you've got the New King James, the NIV, then it's got, I'm not going up to Jerusalem yet. There are some manuscripts that have that in there. Almost certainly it's scribes trying to deal with the conflict. Jesus says he's not going to go. The law demands that he go, and then he does go. Well, how do we make sense of this? Well, and I think, I think the key distinction is, for us is given 
in verse 10. He went up not publicly, but in private. Jesus is refusing what they suggest. They suggest he go with them. He go publicly. He go in an entourage, as it were. We know that that Joseph's extended family and their travels to Jerusalem is quite large. How do we know that? Because in Luke 2, they leave Jerusalem. Jesus is in the temple talking to the teachers, and it takes them a full day to realize he's not with them because they assume he's just with another portion of the family. You need more than a dozen people or so before you can credibly make that mistake. Mary and Joseph think Jesus is with them. He's just got to be some other. So this is a big caravan. This is a large group of people, at least that year. And so there'd be this big group going up. Jesus, the celebrated rabbi, would go up with them. He could make a big entrance. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. That's your plan. That's your timing. That's not mine. That's not my father's. Jesus refuses his brother's urging because he is committed to his father's timing. This is similar, in fact, and I think this helps explain and is explained by what happens in chapter two. Remember, Mary tells Jesus they ran out of wine at the wedding. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet here. Again, it's timing that Jesus indicates is the problem. But then again, Jesus goes ahead and does what she asks. He just does it secretly. There's a lot of similarity here. And so I think the explanation is this. If Jesus were to go up to Jerusalem in the way they suggest, it would alter, interfere with, conflict with the timing of the crucifixion. You remember Daniel predicts not just the year or the month, but the day that the anointed one will be cut off from among his people. The crucifixion has to happen on the right day in the right year. And if Jesus draws too much attention to himself, if he makes a, basically if he does the triumphal entry a year early or half a year early, the timing's going to be off. So, so he says, no, now is not the hour. Now is not the time. Jesus is committed to his father's time. It's, it's, it's what he's focused on throughout this book. In John 12, 23, the end of his public ministry, we, we read, Jesus answered them, the hour has come. And in John 17, 1, when he prays to his father in the garden the night before the crucifixion, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. So the hour is coming, the hour is coming. And then it's here, finally, the hour for him to be lifted up and glorified. And it's not now. It's not now. We're about six months off. Not now at all. Next thing he says to them has got to be somewhat of a stinging rebuke. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And I think he's in part correcting their ministry philosophy assumption. And again, if we take John's gospel seriously, we must believe and receive the depravity of man, that the reason people reject Jesus is not because they don't have enough credible arguments. That's what they want to say. People want to present themselves as neutral, and they just haven't heard a good argument. They've just got some really good questions, and they just want to help think through some problems. And that's not what John's gospel says. John three nineteen. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why'd they do that, John? Because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. The reason men hate Jesus is because they love their sin. And that's what Jesus points out here. 
And while people love their sin, it doesn't matter how many miracles he's going to do, as they understand his message, they will hate him. I, I think that's the, 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 his, why he doesn't adopt their ministry philosophy. Don't you understand? The world hates me, he says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. It doesn't matter how many feedings of the 5,000 Jesus does, while he testifies about their works, that they're evil, and while they love their works that are evil, they're going to hate him. That's the issue. Now, clearly, Jesus puts his brothers in the camp of the world. The world can't hate you. You're of the world, he says to them. His brothers belong to and think like the world, but the world hates Jesus because he exposes its sin. That's going to become really plain in John chapter 8. Just, just real quick, turn to John chapter 8. This is, this is all setting up what's to come. In John chapter 8, we'll see this plainly. You've read this a number of times than me, but pick it up in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you'd think they'd love that statement. You'd think they'd say, oh, that's wonderful. No, they're actually a little offended. The truth setting them free kind of implies that maybe right now they're captive to something. They don't like that. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Which is a ridiculous statement. How is it that you say you will be free? Jesus makes it clear. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Ooh, they don't like this. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. It's Jesus teaching that offends them. It's not the miracles. And I'm, if Jesus had stopped right there and said, now, but let me make some food real fast, they'd still want to kill him. It's not, it's not addressing the real central issue. It's not addressing the real issue. So Jesus rejects his brother's encouragement. He rejects their strategy for recovering his ministry. And he makes it clear to them, their mindset, their values is wholly different. The reason the world hates him is because of what Jesus says. He testifies about it concerning its sin. And no amount of miracles is going to alter that fact. The world hates Jesus because he exposes its sin. And so then we read, Jesus does not go up, but remains in Galilee. Which brings us then to the last few verses. Okay, we got just a few minutes. After this, brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? 
And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So quickly here. At the right time, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. At the right time, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. By the way, you always go up to Jerusalem, no matter where you're coming from, because Jerusalem is on a mountain, it's on a hill. And there's an entire section of the Psalter, Psalms 120 to 134. They're called Psalms of Ascents. God in his grace and his providence gave Israelites specific psalms to sing, to prepare their hearts to come to worship. I wonder if Jesus was singing, reciting some of them as he traveled. But he does go up. At the right time, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. First point one, Jesus goes up to, to Jerusalem secretly, secretly, covertly. Jesus is going to go teach in the temple. I've sometimes said like guerrilla style. He's just going to pop up and start teaching. And it ends, this notion of secret, hidden, again, dominates the section. Go to the end of chapter 8. Where after he says, before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to throw at him, verse 59, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This notion of going up secretly to the temple in Jerusalem is, is capped by these references to, to hidden, secret. He's not going up in the caravan of Joseph and Mary's family because the Jews are looking for him. That'd be the first place they'd look, right? We're looking for Jesus. Here comes the caravan of Joseph and Mary. If Joseph's still alive, he's probably not. But of their extended family, where's the first place the Jews trying to kill Jesus looking for him would look? In that caravan. It would be obvious. It would not be surreptitious. It would not be hidden. It wouldn't be quiet. It's a big group of people. But he doesn't go up with them. He goes up secretly. He goes up privately. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem secretly. So make no mistake, he's not afraid of them. He's not afraid of the world that hates him. It's not as though Jesus is cowering in Galilee. His focus is on the timing. It's not time for him to go public yet. It's not time for him to be crucified yet. And he's completely committed to his father's will, his father's timing. And he does go up, and he goes up secretly. And then we set the context. We'll pick this up next week when he begins teaching. And the context is Jerusalem is divided. It's a hubbub. It's a gog with different opinions. And we, and we read of the differing perspectives. First, we have the Jews. We're looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? Where is he? They're searching for him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. This, again, is an indication that John will frequently use the term the Jews to mean the bad, unbelieving Jews, religious leader Jews. Because surely the people are Jews also. There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So quickly, the Jews were seeking him. They were seeking to kill him. And the crowd is divided about Jesus. They're not sure what to make of him. And, And we see there are some people who think he's a good man. Now that's woefully insufficient, but it's true as far as it goes. But there's already the, the rising tide that he is leading the people astray. And yet, overwhelming the whole is this fear. The Jews don't want people talking about Jesus. We, we get so far that the, the Jewish bigwigs, the leaders, have already tried to suppress even the talking about him. By chapter 9, we learn that they've determined anyone who, who confesses Jesus will be thrown out of the synagogue. They're already starting to suppress Jesus' ministry. They're starting to suppress his fame and popularity. They're already actively working against him. And into this 
context Jesus enters, a divided Jerusalem where people whispering under their breath are talking about Jesus. The Jews are looking for him and it's just setting up drama. We'll, we'll pick it up next week, but I just want to read a few verses further into this because Jesus is fearless. If, if, if you read this and think Jesus is timid, you're wrong. I love this. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the middle, into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. What Jesus doesn't do is miracles. In John 7 and 8, there's, there's zero miracles. He goes up and he preaches and is teaching. And he's trying to win over those on the fence. He's trying to win over those the Father might be working and calling. He's, he's obedient and faithful and committed. And so as we draw to a close now, I just want to highlight a few realities. First, the reality that we saw in looking at the Feast of Booths, God would have us as well. We will one day celebrate this. It is important for us to intentionally remember to give him thanks for his abundant blessings. It's important to bear in mind he gives us the strength to make wealth. He gives us the fruit of the ground. He gives us our food to eat, not Walmart or Costco, except as indirect, secondary, and tertiary means, right? And it's important for us to remember that, that God wants us to rejoice in the good things he gives us, but he doesn't want us to worship them. He doesn't, we can worship the creation. Rather, he's given us all things freely to enjoy. It's, it's good. I think Thanksgiving is a good tradition that we have set up in our country. I think it's fitting. I think it seems right. But Thanksgiving should be governing our lives in general. And, and second, the irony that the one who is the provision, I mean, think about this. Jesus has already identified himself as the bread come down from heaven, which is a picture of the miraculous provision in the wandering in the wilderness. And the Feast of Booths is meant to remind you of God's provision in the wandering in the wilderness. The true bread from heaven is going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. God is sending, in John 7, his true bread from heaven to Jerusalem to the Feast of Booths so that all who want to eat of it may eat and live. I think that's, I think that's glorious. But ultimately, Jesus will reign over the Feast of Booths in an inaugurated kingdom where the kings of this earth will come up and do homage to him. And the choice for us is will we bow and bend our knee now or will it be smashed with a rod of iron later? But trust me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that the blessing, the joy is for us who do it freely, willingly now. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for being the author of every good thing. We thank you for the grace you give us that we, we are not mindful of. We presume upon it so often. And only when you withdraw it, only when it's not as lavish as it was the day before do we are even aware of it. So, so help us to be intentional, to be thankful, to give you thanks for your things you give us that we might be confident in your future provisions. And Lord, help us like the Lord Jesus Christ to be intent on your will, your timing, what you would have us do, not to follow the counsels of men and to walk in their way, but to, to, to do your work your way obediently and faithfully. 
Give us the courage and the fearlessness of the Lord Jesus, who even though the world hated him, was unafraid. For he said they would hate us as well. Let us not fear their wrath, but trust in your sovereign protection. In Jesus' name, amen.